Hey y'all, it's Tiana, and I'm excited to be bringing you another conversation with a guest for the Live Your Best Fat Life podcast. Ah, This one is a good one. It's a continuation of a conversation that we started back in the Braving Body Shame Conference in 2021. Um, I enjoyed it, and I really hope that you do too. So get ready. Here we go. Hey, everybody. It's Tiana, and I have a guest today. Hey, guest. Hello, hello. (laughs) So this guest um, is somebody that I just sort of like found on social media, and I had no idea who you were. I didn't know what you were doing. I just thought like, oh, this post is great. I don't even remember what post it was. And I was like, I'm going to follow this because this is great. And then I had the pleasure of interviewing you for the Braving Body Shame 2020 conference. Or the 20, sorry, 20, 2021 conference. And the conversation was fire. Yeah, I um, we really had good chemistry, right? Oh, like I'm God. not going to lie that I thought that was a really great um, conversation. And it was an honor um, to be asked to be able to share my story and my braving body shame story. Oh, heck yeah. That was so good. I just remember like having the conversation and going like, Ooh, I, this is deep. I'm learning something. We're going places. I didn't think we were going to go. And I was like, this is good money. We need to do this again. (laughs) And so here we are doing this again. Yeah, I am. I am. I am so glad that you reached out. Um, I know, you know, the space, um, when I talk about this space, the body liberation space can feel small, but vast at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause it seems like there are a fair number of people doing this work, but um, it's so amazing to be able to find the few that you really authentically connect with yeah. and, you know, share a lot of, um, lived experiences in different ways. Um, so I was so, so pumped when you reached out and um, asked to, for B to come on and we can just continue the party, right? Oh yeah. Oh, this is so good. <laughs> I'm excited. I'm like, so I have goosebumps and I'm so excited. So like, nobody knows who you are yet. So my lovely guest, can you please introduce yourself? Yes, sure. Absolutely. Um, so hello, everybody. My name is Patrilli Hernandez, and uh, my pronouns are she, her, they, and them. Um, so I, you know, have been working in health and nutrition. I've worked as an educator. I've worked as an advocate, a project manager, a policy analyst. Um, I have, you know, kind of an eclectic academic background. I have a degree in culinary arts. I have a degree in anthropology. I have a degree in nutrition, nonprofit management. Um, And so people are always like, oh my gosh, that's kind of all over the place. But if you uh, hear my story, right, and my lived experiences, I identify as a fat, neuroatypical, queer, femme, Um, of the Puerto Rican diaspora, um, you'll see that a lot of my lived experiences and my life journey um, really informed my next steps where I was going to go with my academic um, 
pursuits and my career. So um, basically what I'm here to do, and I'm here to disrupt the status quo um, of my local uh, nutrition and wellness community. And I advocate for white inclusive health paradigms um, in educational and in healthcare settings. Um, so what do I do currently? I currently work here in Washington, DC. I live and work in Washington, DC, USA. Um, I work in early childhood um, health and nutrition, and I help others nurture young children who are confident in their relationship with food, their health, and their bodies. Um, in addition to that, I'm the founder of Embody Live, and that's a community, a platform that helps people of the global majority uh, reclaim their health and well-being. Um, and what do I like to do in my spare time? Um, I'm pretty simple. I love cooking for others. I love looking at the moon and I love spending time with my partner and my chihuahua, Sophie. I love it. I love it. Like there have been, <laughs> as you were introducing yourself, there's like so many points where I'm just like grinning ear to ear and I'm just like, oh my God, I'm so excited. Um, and also just like, ideas firing off in my head because you told me some things in there that I did not know about you. You culinary oh, awesome. arts, what? Yeah, yeah. I started off my career in the kitchen. I went to college for two years after high school and it was just a hot mess and I needed mm. to find myself. And I found myself in a kitchen of a catering company at an art museum that kind of launched my interest that reignited because I've always loved to cook, but reignited yeah. and made um actually getting paid to cook and work in the restaurant industry um, an option. So that's what I did for the first five years of my career. That's amazing. That's amazing. I love that this is just another point of connection for us because I also went, you know, to college straight out of high school and I made it four years somehow, mm -hmm. but I had a two-year break because I also was completely lost. Like, I mean, I had a lot of things that had happened emotionally and mentally. And like, and I was just like, I am lost. I'm completely lost. So I ended up taking a two-year break. Um, mm -hmm. I call it my sabbatical. <laughs> but, but basically- At, at the ripe yeah. age of 22 and 24. <laughs> Exactly. You know, I'm just going to take a break and like see the world. And that's the thing, right? It's like generally if you were white, you know, and affluent, this would be, I'm going to take a break and backpack around Europe. Um, I didn't take a break to backpack around Europe. I ended up living at my mom's house and working customer service, which I was damn good at. Um, <laughs> but basically like very different experience. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I was very much a non-traditional student. I did end up going back to school, obviously, um, in my in my late twenties, and I and, and I did take out a loan to spend a semester abroad and backpack through Europe. Ooh. I'm still paying for it today, um, <laughs> but you know, uh, no regrets, no regrets. No. Um, but yeah, I think the break that I took, um, you know, was partially not knowing what I wanted to do with my life, but, but it was also a mental health thing. Yeah. I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder when I was 19. Mm. Um, so I mean, a lot of that, it typically takes about five years to really get a hold on treatment. So um, they were tumultuous and it was chaotic yeah. at times and a lot of low points, but I managed to work as much as I could through that. And, you know, I, 
I didn't give up on my dream to, to finally go back to school. And, and I did, I was 27 when I graduated with my undergrad and then I went to grad school not soon after. So, I mean, it's possible. Um, I think, you know, in American culture, a lot of people, or I wouldn't just say white, white, white American culture, but especially people that have, um, had the immigration experience to the U.S., right? The expectation is you go to college mm-hmm. um, for, for, for a lot of us anyway, the ones that have more, more of an education and class privilege, which I do because both of my parents were both highly educated. Mm-hmm. The expectation was for you to go to college and get the best job you could yeah. um, at a young age so you, so you wouldn't have to uh, financially suffer like your parents and your family did. So, um, I, I see that kind of sentiment and when, you know, that didn't happen for me, um, there's a, there's a lot of guilt associated with that. Cause it's like, Mm. oh, my parents came here to give me a better life. And like, here I am, but it all works out. I would not change a thing about it. I would not, um, go back, um, do anything differently because if I did, it wouldn't, it wouldn't lead me here to this moment with you. That's right. That's right. Oh, that's right. It's, oh my goodness. <laughs> There's so much there. There's so much there. And I'm, and I'm just like, I feel so much of that because, you know, it was also my mom's dream that I went to college and, and when like, it didn't happen the way she wanted it to, there was disappointment, I think on both sides. Now she's never, she's never expressed hers, but I know that part of my guilt and my disappointment in myself was also coming from what I, you know, like projected that my mom or like imagined what my mom was thinking about what I was doing. And I also was able to go back and finish. Um, and I got out at 26. So there you go by one year, but but basically, um, it was, it was really tough. I mean, but at the same time, like going back at that older age, you know, I mean, I had only gotten two years, but I, knew what I was doing at that point. Like, I know what I'm here for. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Same. And I mean, you know, I don't know about you, but I was working, right. So you had to manage working with being a student and you, you didn't have that college student experience that you see in the movies and stuff. But like I said, when I went back, I knew what I had to do. And I was in an emotional, I, I had enough emotional maturity to yeah. know what was on the line, right? Yeah. You finish this and as a result, you can do this and this and this. So it allowed right. me to take it a lot more seriously. That's right. And I think it's unfair, right? Like culturally at 18 to, yeah. to ask an 18 year old to like choose the path of the rest of their lives. Like mm-hmm. um, there's a problem there. Yeah. And I hear so many, you know, kids, anyone under the age of 30 is kids, um, right? <laughs> but so, so, so many of these kids, so many of the youths, you know, have, um, like they, like, I, I thought that my generation had, um, a huge bout of imposter syndrome. I, mm. I, I think our, I think our Gen Zers, um, have it even worse because they're like 22 and 24 and they're like running around saying how unaccomplished they feel and how behind Mm. in life. And you're just like, you're 22, 24. Um, but you know, I think, I think that's just a product of, of, of the society we live in. I agree. Um, 
I agree. Ooh, that reminds me of something mm-hmm. that just like, that I wrote down. I had to write it down. Okay. And I will share it not right now because I want to talk about the thing that made me think this. Um, you wrote this article mm-hmm. for Wear Your Voice magazine mm-hmm. called Food Insecurity, Anti-Blackness, and Fat Phobia, What Food Access Advocates Need to Understand. And when I read this, I was like, yes, yes, very much yes, because we have to tie all these things together. When we're having this conversation, like in the mainstream, quote unquote, whatever that means to you or anyone listening, um, (laughs) we talk about it in a certain kind of way, which is very stigmatizing. It's very othering. And it's really pejorative. And we're not talking about people. We're talking about like avatars and like ideas. And this article that you wrote was so human and like just so real. And I want you to talk about it if you would like. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, when Where Your Voice first approached me to write an article or a set of articles for their Food is Political series, um, first of all, I was, I, I completely, um, I don't know what the word, fan, fan persons, because um, this outlet has just been um, so important in yeah. my journey to critique uh, dominant cultural systems and dominant power systems. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I remember meeting with the editor a few times cause you know, I'm not, I'm not a writer. Um, I, I don't love it. Um, I know I have other colleagues in this space that can just pump out, you know, thousand, couple thousand word, you know, blogs and, and essays within the matter of hours. For me, I really have to sit with things. Um, and you know, I know that the editor was really interested in um, learning more about my career in food justice and the food access space and Mm -hmm. what that meant. And so I know I mentioned when um, I introduced myself that my academic background is kind of a hodgepodge, but it really flows together if you know my story. And so I didn't feel like I was able to share my thoughts on food access and food justice without sharing my personal story, because every move that I have made in my professional life, because, you know, I am one of those people where my profession and my passion um, overlap because of my drive and my, and my, you know, innate purpose to do something in this world mm-hmm. that makes the lives of others um, better to help them thrive and to yeah. inspire them, right? To yeah. help others. So in order to share my thoughts on my experiences on the food access space over the past decade and a half, I really had to go to um, the place where it all started. And, you know, I uh, was on SNAP benefits for a couple of years. I was working the restaurant industry. I was trying to go to school part-time. I was trying to figure out my mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was juggling a lot of things. So I used, you know, um, government assistance programs as a way to navigate uh, my financial situation, my mental health, my career tra- 
trajectory. So, um, and, you know, I, I have experience, um, with these programs, um, growing up, um, my parents also utilized government assistance when they were setting out, when they were starting out. So, yeah, so I had to bring, I had to bring this perspective if I wanted people to truly understand, um, where I was coming from and what that means for the work ahead. Um, so yeah, so I just started off telling about, you know, story I had, um, waiting tables in St. Louis and, Mm -hmm. you know, my first, the, the first glimpse I got, um, at chronic food insecurity Mm. outside of, um, living in New York city when I was a youngster in the eighties. Um, so that kind of, that, that, that story that I told, um, led to, um, kind of me breaking down how food access and the work work of food access and food justice kind of came into this space that really centers, um, a lot of white supremacist ideas, um, Mm. especially around fat phobia and food policing. Um, so, you know, I, I started out, um, uh, kind of talking about the civil rights movement and what that has to do with hunger in America. So I, you know, for a few years, um, I worked at this think tank that was really known as one of the, um, was known as one of the best content experts around hunger and anti-hunger policy in Mm -hmm. the U.S. And um, I learned about, you know, the history, I'm putting this in air quotes, about how hunger in America was first brought to light. Um, But I, but as I kind of tried to decolonize uh, my approach around food access, I learned that they left a lot out. And Mm. a lot of that was the impact that, you know, um, uh, different sovereignty groups like the Black Panthers and different indigenous civil rights activists um, played in developing uh, community feeding programs for children and adults. Um, And so, you know, just kind of looking at this as an introduction, like way back when, when they were like, oh, you know, hunger in America was first brought to light because of Bobby Kennedy in this CBS documentary. And, and while, you know, that was true to an extent, it brought hunger in America to white audiences. That's right. That's but it right. didn't necessarily, right. Um, it, it was not a new issue within communities of color. And it was yeah. something that they had been working th- uh, for, for, uh, like for decades through, um, mutual aid models and through like community care models to be able to address. Um, so yeah, so that was just one example that I brought up, right. Saying that a lot of what we know about hunger and food security in America has only been present presented to us through a white lens. And, Mm. um, what does it mean to pull that back and to really look at what the heart is of the issues and what has been done and what can be done if we listen um, more to Black and Indigenous leaders on this subject. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so the other part of that um, was when I kind of weaved together um, how, uh, I don't know if I could say this word, obesity, the O word, yeah. um, became intertwined into feeding hungry people. Um, and that is a little bit more of a um, newer framework. Yeah. Um, and again, right, it was something that was uh, pr- uh, pr- proposed by a white male doctor um, that, you know, there was a team of white men that really came together to coin what the obesity epidemic was. Um, and then, you know, um, it kind of took off from, from there. And from there you saw, you know, um, the inclusion or the, the change to BMI statuses that literally mm-hmm. happened overnight where people woke up in the morning and, you know, um, 7 million people were now classified in a different BMI status and therefore um, labels as unhealthy because um, a group of medical experts decided to do that. Right. Um, oh my there gosh. Is, yeah. Like there is, <laughs> I just, you know, I'm sorry, I gotta jump in here. Oh my God. I, so I'm leading a group read right now and we're reading Fearing the Black Body, The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia, written by Dr. Sabrina Strings. And we just finished chapter four and it is so enraging to find- Can you remind me which chapter that was? Yeah, absolutely. So, um- Okay, so we have read, um, like where we're at right now is, so we have talked about the introduction or like how the othering of black people and Africans or also black Africans, they were referred to then as well, um, how they were like trying to distinguish between and justify enslaving these people by um, essentially trying to say like, here's how we are and look at how uh, how civilized we are because we are not like them. They're like gross and so savage and look at their, they're just gluttonous. Um, and it's just, it's enraging because then also they're talking about, um, she, she discusses in the book, how, uh, like the introduction of sugar, which is a, is a, um, um, a production courtesy of, you know, the work of enslaved peoples and colonization and how that impacted essentially the waistlines of, you know, the colonizer countries. And then, you know, we're talking about how also like in the book is, is, is in uh, just, I'm stuttering because there's just like so much rage. Um, and, and it's just like, they're talking about how like beauty ideals were changed to better like differentiate between, um, you know, what is a quote unquote good white woman versus these lowly um, black Africans. And the thing that is just enraging, just all of it is horrible. It's just yeah, horrible to it's read. It's pretty atrocious. 
It's really hard. But the thing that's very frustrating is the fact that it's just this handful of privileged white men mm-hmm. who arbitrarily are making these determinations. Mm-hmm. What are they based on? Not much except for this is what I personally happen to like because yeah. I'm influenced by these other privileged white men who have made these arbitrary um, uh, discriminations. Yeah, and it's, it's so, fr- oh God, it's so frustrating. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I, I do like, I would love to talk about this, that this is all done right in the name of quote unquote science, race science. That is what you were, I, I think, inferring to when yeah. you were looking at the classification statuses yeah. in, in the book by Sabrina Strings to, to determine who was, you know, of um, higher status, who That's was right. closer to God, who was pure, That's who right. was, you know, um, more worthy. Um, and that, and that developed out of anthropologists that are used a scientific framework to classify race, which is complete another bullshit. Um, <laughs> right. With the BMI classifications, we, we see something not necessarily paralleled, but if you look at the methodology of, for example, this status that was changed overnight that impacted exactly. tens of millions exactly. of people, um, it, it, it was a decision that was driven by profit in a sense, because by lowering the BMI, the overweight category from 27, or sorry, the normal, quote unquote, um, BMI status from 27 to 25, and anything above 25 was overweight, that was um, for insurance companies to be able to promote that number 25 as being easier to remember. This was not based on, you know, longitudinal studies, double double blind controlled um, studies. This was due to appease a financial stakeholder. Um, So so when we look at the parallels of race science and how that's driven by capitalist profit, right? When the onset to justify chattel slavery. um, So, you know, people can, Africans to justify the enslavement of Africans to be able to work the land in order to develop um, a strong economy for the white settlers and the white colonizers, you see how science is weaponized in this sense. Um, And so, you know, I just think this is really relevant now, especially in this in this time as people are questioning science. Um, But I think it's just interesting because the people that are questioning science and what it means are, again, the majority of them hold um, dominant identities, right? Right. Especially here in the US, right? We're looking at the anti-vax movement, all of that. It is being primarily driven by those that have very systemically advantaged identities, whether it's class privilege, whether it's skin privilege. Um, And so I just, I just, I, I, I just find that really interesting, um, just the parallels among the three and how mm-hmm. science is really driven by um, a lot of the times those with the most capital and those happen to be 
old white men most of the time. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. And it's just, it's so frustrating. Cause like, that's also something, I mean, this book is talking. Um, I think the beginning of the book is, is something like we're talking about the 1500s and um, the part that we just finished reading, we're in like the 1700s. And it's just like, it's been a couple hundred years now. We're still doing this. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think it's hard to reconcile, especially personally as someone that has an anthropology degree. Mm. And, you know, my father's a scientist on my father's side, a lot of them are engineer scientists and just, you know, reconciling how life-saving science can be. Right. Right. But at the same time, looking at how it's been used to methodologically, I don't know if that's the right word. M- methodically there, there we, we go. go yeah I was English, like is hard. It? I was like is it I don't know <laughs> English is hard um, English is hard to you know test and eventually wipe out um black and indigenous populations yeah so I think you know like the conversation around this right and how it relates to the work that is outlined in um the book by Sabrina Strings to the to what I reference in the article for where your voice to what we're seeing today. Um, I think it's a very interesting conversation to be had. Yeah. Um, especially because it impacts so many marginalized people. That's right. That's right. Mm. 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 This is, mm. <laughs> <laughs> this is the magic of Petrilli. When I have conversations with Petrilli, I tend to have that moment where I don't know what to say next. Um, just like marinate. You just right? let it marinate. <laughs> just letting it marinate and like sweep over me and just oh, all the emotions. Anyway. Okay. Yes. So, okay. So I want to come back to this article because I've got okay. it in front of me and we that's where we left off on my tangent was talking about how you know just a bunch of quote-unquote designated um random white dudes get together and they decide that it's more advantageous to help people um remember numbers by making them round um who cares what other people like who's actually affected and and what it really means mm-hmm. um so let's go back and talk about this bmi lowering um yeah i mean i think i think that that was you know that whole incidence and the the way that bmi is leveraged um i will say exploited Mm-hmm. Um, to make assumptions and to cut resources and to manipulate, especially communities of color, Black and Indigenous communities. Yes. Um, I think just highlights, you know, where we've gone wrong in the food access and food justice movement, I feel mm-hmm. like, especially, and some conversations are happening now. I feel like some people are kind of waking up to um, how this kind of BMI 
And this concern about obesity has overshadowed what the real important work is. And that is, you know, in a country that produces so much food and has the capital to feed everybody, um, there is a disproportionate amount of people um, that still can't put food on their table every day and still can't put food that they, you know, feel nourishes them. Yeah. Um, and that is the issue. And so, um, and I feel like that's been spread and accepted by lots of different groups in the food justice and food access community, especially in um, like in the BIPOC community. I think mm-hmm. the internalized fat phobia and the internalized oppression we, we, we have in our own communities that you know, being in a big body is a moral failing. Um, I, I think some of the worst perpetrators sometimes are among our own. I Mm. think it's, I think it's the hardest. It's so hard. It's so hard talking about this stuff in communities where people look like me, right. Yeah. That have that identify as people of color. Um, because they're the ones most indoctrinated with this fat phobic and internalized hatred um, of fatness and yeah. what and what that equates to. So I think that was more like the second part of the article. Um, yeah. the, sorry, the essay that I wrote. Yeah. Oh, oh my. That's like, that's really heavy. <laughs> That's yeah. really heavy. And I, I mean, like the truth is heavy and I feel yeah. like I would love more spaces to talk about this, yeah. to, to talk about the way that we, the collective, we, the people of the global majority, mm. um, replicate, um, white supremacist ideology, Absolutely. like among our own people. Oh God. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Mm, that's that's big that's big because because I oh yeah (laughs) oh my goodness sorry I'm gonna stutter a little bit because it's um this is tender for me Ooh, um this is a big idea this is a really big idea and and then like the things that are jumping that are like my knee-jerk reactions to this are like well, of course it makes sense that we're so heavily indoctrinated as people of color. And the reason why is because survival, right? You know, we're trying to survive out here in these white supremacist streets and um, we are disadvantaged and disenfranchised at every turn. We just don't have a chance. Um, and they bottle, they bottle our thing. They take things from us they repackage them and they sell it to us at a higher price while penalizing us for, you know, having had it in the first place. Um, It's just, we're so fucked. (laughs) And also in spite of all of that, we still say stay so strong and we really work toward perseverance. But the fact of the matter is, is that in the end we punish ourselves and each other. Yeah. Um, Oh my goodness. Because I do have to say that like, you know, um, as much as I believe in my work as a fat activist and a body liberationist and a fat liberationist, like 
I get nervous sharing about it in a largely black space that is not already a warm space Mm -hmm. in a way that I do not get nervous doing it in a white space or a majority white space. Um, And I think that for me, part of that is that I don't belong in that white space. So if they don't receive me in the end, it's sort of fine because I knew that I didn't really fit in there anyway, Mm -hmm. but in the majority black space, if I get rejected, that threatens my survival in some way, you know, I mean, not like, not materially because I'm not depending on these people to pay my rent or anything like that, but like it does really um like there's more at stake I think emotionally and from a soul perspective yeah 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 I get what you're saying that that's yeah Mm. yeah that's powerful that's powerful Mm. yeah that's Um, not where I thought I was gonna go with this no but but I think it's real I think it's real and you know on the flip side right because people of the globe global majority because we've been indoctrinated to believe that white supremacy and white supremacy white supremacist ideology um, will help us survive in this white supremacist world right there's a there is even more racialization colorism that occurs um, which you know we have to be cognizant of our positionality um, in the way that we navigate spaces in, in a way that we might not have to be in exclusively white spaces because an exclusively white, because I will, because I'm a non-black, um, person of color and, um, my adjacentness to whiteness is a lot closer than someone that is black. Right. But I think in predominantly white spaces, um, they just see me as a person of color. They see me as a Latina or whatever, some 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 brown Latina, yeah. and they'll just paint me with a broad brush, right? They'll say Absolutely. you this, this, and this. But there's a lot more in spaces that are BIPOC, right? Black, Indigenous, and other persons of color. Um, there's there's to navigate these spaces is completely different yeah. and require a lot more care. Mm-hmm. Um, but you add body size on top of that, right? And it becomes even more complicated. Absolutely. So I think for me, you know, as someone that isn't black, when I go into white spaces and I talk about fat liberation um, and my experiences, you know, as a person of color, you're right, there is less at risk um, for me, I think, emotionally and mentally than if yeah. there are in spaces that are BIPOC because, you know, in spaces that are BIPOC, yes, I speak of my fat experiences and I even have privilege in this, right? Like I'm a small to mid fat, like, um, but because of the skin privilege that I have, um, navigating these spaces becomes a lot messier and a lot more tender. And there's a lot more at stake, not just for me individually, but as a collective. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it is, it's definitely lots of layers of complication. I, I think talking about this stuff, especially 
in spaces, like for example, I'll just use my family, right? Racially, we're all, we're all very like diverse. Yeah. Um, and to talk about fat liberation to somebody, let's say in Puerto Rico, where I'm from, that is, um, that is, uh, that identifies as like an Afro Boricua or identifies mm -hmm. as black and living in a black and living in a fat body, like yeah. in Puerto Rico, societally, you are much more marginalized here, here in the U S I think, I think too, but, yeah. um, you are, you are much more marginalized being dark skinned yeah, and being fat than if you are being a blanquita, being, being, mm -hmm. being like light skin with the light right. eyes and that being in a fat body and the same thing. I, I think the level of marginalization you face when you're thin, quote unquote, conventionally attractive, yes. um, re regardless of skin color, you are perceived in a different way um, on the island than if you lived in a fat body. So yeah, yeah, there's a lot of nuance to that for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, that really speaks to just the anti-Blackness that has been exported around the world, courtesy mm -hmm. of colonization. Mm -hmm. Oh, just exhausting. Yeah, <laughs> just it is. Exhausting. Like the fact that I spend my all my waking moments thinking and analyzing and processing this when there are white people, like white, 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 white people mm -hmm. <laughs> walking around and this doesn't even cross their head once. Like, mm. I'm just like, oh, I feel I feel robbed of peace. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about that. I mean, that I mean, that that's real. Right. Because I mean, that's where that comes from. Right. Like, like, like the marginalization and and all of the physical and mental effects of that the emotional weight of all of that this is where it comes from from the fact that i have to think about it like everything that i do i always right. have to think about it like um, all your steps are informed by that every single one before i even leave the house and and it's just like you know my husband who is white he's french but he's white like he's not thinking about this kind of stuff. He's just yeah. like, did I, do I have my wallet and my phone and my keys? Like, this is what he's thinking about. I'm thinking about those things too, but I'm also thinking about, will the chairs fit me? Like, uh, are they going to talk to me funny because I look like I do. And even though I look like I do, like, I also like you, I have quite a lot of skin privilege um, mm -hmm. because I'm, I'm biracial, but I am not like, Define definedly black. Like if you look at me, um, you'd be unless you know, like you probably wouldn't know. I mean, yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've been told I was Dominican or I've been right. Puerto Rican, like right. all You're kinds Rican, of things. like that racially yeah. ambiguous mix. Yeah, exactly, right? exactly. I'm racially ambiguous mix. Absolutely, I'm always mixed something, um, and uh, it tells me more about who I'm talking to than anything. But uh, like knowing that I have that still yeah. makes everything, it, it somehow even complicates it even more because I absolutely know how you would treat me if I was a dark skinned person walking into a place, but like, I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a really, you know, uncomfortable place to straddle, like personally uncomfortable, right? Because Very you much. navigate your privilege and power with, you know, ways that you've been marginalized and it's such a fine line. And at the same time, right. Like you need to be very cognizant, um, of how you position yourself in, 
um, spaces of color. Right. right. So it's a, it's a, like, it takes up a lot of my brain. It does. Yes, <laughs> I'm going to be honest. Yeah. I think it's tiring sometimes, but I think that if my goal is collective liberation, like that's what it has to be. That's right. I mean, it's part of the commitment. It's just like, you know, this is what you have on your plate and you just do the best you can to carry it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the best you can. Right. Mm. Mm. Well, that's not where I thought we were going to go yeah. today, but I'm glad <laughs> that that's where we went today. Um, so just to like come back to this this article just one more time. The thing that I, like I said, the thing that was really impressive to me was just how human it was. Um, I feel like there's really a fundamental dissonance dissonance in our culture where there's this impetus to always keep moving forward. Like just keep moving forward, you know, always be progressing, always be changing, always be, you know, moving, reaching toward. Oh, I fall into that trap a hundred percent. Absolutely. How could you not? Right. Um, But what I really love about this article is that you look back at yourself and you are pretty raw and honest with who you were and what you were thinking and your biases and and those things that you carried with you at that time and I think that that's I'm going to use this term I think that that's amazingly brave you know um completely you know like non-pejoratively but I think it's really brave and and the reason why is because um looking back at who we used to be, especially considering the fact that most of the time, great majority of the time, the person we used to be is somebody sort of not really pleasant in relation to where we are today. Mm -hmm. Um, And so like, there's definitely a lot of like, I'm not going to look at that. I'm going to pretend she didn't exist. I'm going to pretend that didn't actually happen. I wasn't there. Um, and I love when someone actually can look at their past self and have a conversation with them and like, be honest with that. Um, and like, then also like show the little breadcrumb trail of how you got to where you are today. Because like, I mean, this is the thing that I wrote down, which is how do you know, or how do you grow if you don't know where you are rooted? Yeah. That is so, I resonate with that on so many different levels of where I am right now currently. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and it's very interesting that you say that because connecting to my career trajectory and my academic background, I've wanted to be an anthropologist since I was five or six years old, since oh I first gosh. learned what it was, because... Yeah. What I understood about it at the time was it was a glimpse into who we were mm. that leads to who we are now. Mm. And when I was in seventh grade, my teacher told me, you can't be an anthropologist. That's not a real job. After I spent like a month on my anthropology science project. No. Yeah, but it's all right because it took a mental health diagnosis, 
three attempts to go back to college at three or four different schools to say, you know what, I'm going to go back to my roots and do what I wanted to do, which is to study um, scholarship to get scholarship around anthropology. And so just that what you wrote down, um, I think really reflects my worldview because if the roots are strong, right? Like that's where that's where you flourish. Yeah. And I've never been somebody who has run away from who I am. Sometimes do I feel a lot of shame around it sometimes? Unnecessary shame? Yes. Yeah. And that's something I struggle with a lot. But yeah. hiding who you were denies denies community, denies the world from your wholeness, right? Mm. And I think when you just present yourself in one way, that's just a fragment of who you are. And is that how you want to live through life? And it connects. So I have a tattoo on my, on my right arm of the seven moon phases of Mm. um, the seven phases of the moon. And, um, I resonate a lot with the moon because, you know, there's this phrase that says, no matter what phase you're in, you're always whole. Yeah. Right. And that is how I walk through life. So I think it's always really important for people to see the wholeness of you. um, To really know what it's like to live life as a human. Mm. That's what I am. Cause that's what we are. Absolutely. Right. Oh, I love it. I love it. Ooh. So good. So good. Yeah, it's something I I think a lot about on a daily basis. So I had that ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> Be prepared. Absolutely. With the mic drop. I love it. I love it. But I mean, just like this conversation about being rooted, um, it's, I, I'm just, I'm amazed that like this phrase that I, that just like came from my, as my reflection after reading your article was one that resonated so hard with you because it reminds me again of our first conversation, you know, the first interview that we did with For Braving Body Shame, where, you know, like, um, I just, I, <laughs> Like I am struggling myself. Like it's, it's, it's something that I want to get back to um, really like learning more and digging into my own indigeneity and my ancestry and like being in closer relationship with these things. Um, And the thing that's holding me back from doing it is grief. Like, on just just this deep grief of like being disconnected and and not knowing and not being in better relationship and you know there was some share like there was some sharing that we did on that and um it's so good to know that I'm not alone it's sad to know that I'm not alone somehow too because it's, it's sad because you wonder why so many people struggle with this around grief. Yeah. Grief. Um, so, you know, it's been a few months since we connected through that bot 
Raving Body Shape conference. And I know that, you know, I told you about all these plans because very much I was in a similar place about truly what it means to truly reconnect with the wholeness of my ancestry. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, because I'm mixed as Lyag, as they say, that includes um, white colonizer and settler ancestry. And how do I And how do I leverage that in a way that moves towards collective liberation while still honoring and never dismissing my African, my West African and my indigenous ancestry. And so that's been my journey, I think, since the last time we talked. And I even spent a significant amount of time in Puerto Rico and doing a lot of reflection around what it means to, Mm. you know, have your ancestors and your ancestry as part of your human practice, right? Spiritual practice, human practice as a human, um, while still recognizing, right, um, the wholeness of it Mm -hmm. and how to move forward, right? If that includes who to be in solidarity with, um, who to, you know, consider reparations, um, some some sort of restorative process, um, around the ancestors that have contributed to colonialism and to colonization. Um, yeah, so I'm, and it is a grieving process. Mm -hmm. It is a process of, um, letting go, but also a process of honor, paying homage and paying honor letting go yeah of a lot of things yeah so yeah like it's never too late Diana like to to reconnect with that I mean I'm in my mid-30s and you know for a long time I thought my ancestry was one thing and then it it kind of opens up in your face and you learn things about you and your family and Mm -hmm. the trauma that's been passed down but you know the timing of that was a gift even if it was later in life Okay. It's still a gift because okay. I'm at a point where I can actively choose. Um, I Yeah, I can actually choose what to do with it. That's right. That's right. And that's where we should all be, right? We should all be able to actively choose what we do with whatever it is. I love that. I love that. So Patrilli... I got one final question for you. Okay. I'm ready. All right. All right. All right. Good. (laughs) So how are you living your best fat life? How am I living my best fat life? Um, You know, I am living it with lots of Mm self-compassion. And I'm living it with you know the the realization that unfortunately while i want to live my best fat my best fat life um the world is not necessarily equipped yet to handle all of that but (laughs) but but um i think it's important to cherish and really hold on to the moments that um, the world does affirm you. Mm. So, you know, for me, it looks like 
because, you know, food and body shame run deep, deep, deep in my family. Like my eating disorder um, is not a personal disorder. It's a family disorder, right? Just because it was so ingrained, but I feel so affirmed by being embraced by the matriarchs in my family who are proud of the work that I'm doing Mm -hmm. and, you know, say that they wish they, that they wish things were different for them. Right. But they hold hope for the future. Mm -hmm. And, um, that really affirms me because the matriarchs in my family, my grandmothers, my, like my BS, um, my femme and women cousins and family members, um, knowing that the work that I'm doing to heal around our family trauma and our generational trauma and doing this ancestral healing is reaching them. Like Mm -hmm. it makes this all worth it. So knowing that, um, helps me live my best big fat life, my big best fat life. What does it go? (laughs) Your best fat life. I love it. My, 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 my bestest, biggest, fattest life. I love it. I love it. Oh, Oh, delicious. So delicious. I love it. God, Patrulli, thank you so much for coming and speaking with me today and having this deep ass conversation and just going there. I love it. Always. Um, uh, thank you for curating the space that allows me to be vulnerable and, you know, shares the vulnerability. Mm. I know there aren't too many spaces out there for folks like us. So the fact that we can hold the space and curate the space and share the space together means a lot. Mm. I love it. Oh, well, thanks for being here. You have the best day. Thank you. Well, hey, y'all, it's me again, and I hope you really enjoyed that conversation because I know I did. Patrilli is brilliant and just so much fun to talk to. So um, for all of you who were really appreciative of what Patrilli has to say and what they're about, then go ahead and... Uh, hit her up. She's got a website over at uh, www.embodylib, so E-M-B-O-D-Y-L-I-B dot com. You can find them on Instagram at the underscore body lib underscore advocate. And you can always hire Patrilli for one-on-one and institutional consulting services for those who are interested in applying body liberation frameworks into their healthcare, wellness, and educational practices. You know you need it. Go holla at Patrilli and get yourself leveled up. So thanks again for being here with us today. And I hope you had a good time. I'll talk to you later. Bye.